question for you this morning. Have you ever found, kind of caught someone imitating you? Probably, if you, uh, if your coworkers are like any of my coworkers over the years, you probably have a coworker who does a pretty good imitation of you. Um, here's how my kids imitate me. Here's what my kids say I do at work all day. They say that I go up to college students and that I say, hi, and they have to lower the register of their voice to match mine. Hi, my name's Jason. Do you want to get coffee and talk about your life? That's what they say. My whole job is all about, and they're not wrong. They're, they're pretty close to, to being right uh, on the mark in that. Just the other night, uh, we were talking, I don't know if we were looking at pictures or I don't know how, I can't remember how this came up, but we remembered, um, I think two years ago, uh, one of our Christian Challenge meetings in here, I was getting ready to start talking, or I'm not sure what the timing of this was, but about 30 students walked in that door wearing like my uniform black jeans and a black t-shirt and a flannel, and they all, I don't know, someone bought like a bag of a hundred black beards, and so they're all wearing like little fake beards to, to look, to imitate me. I don't know why they did that, but it, it was funny. Um, another little kind of imitation story came to me this summer. Uh, at our summer mission orientation for uh, summer mission teams, one of, and I won't name this person's name, I won't plan to, so not to embarrass him, but now I've narrowed it down to two guys. Um, one of the students who was on our summer mission team was at a summer mission orientation, and he was commended for like picking up trash that he had found kind of scattered around. And Genevieve Lowry kind of elbowed me, and she says, he does that because he saw you doing that on a prayer walk. And I was like, oh, that, I guess that's kind of neat. Like we had been prayer walking together, and I kind of think of myself as like a, an unpaid employee of the university. The university doesn't know that I think of myself this way, but I love students. I love the university. And so we were just prayer walking, and I just started picking up trash on campus as I was walking around. So, oh, that's kind of, kind of charming, kind of fun to hear that this guy picks up trash because we did that prayer walking. But then I got to thinking, and I got kind of nervous Maybe he's thinking that a real spiritual prayer uh, walk includes picking up trash. And I just imagined him like, you know, in James, it says the prayers of a righteous man are effective. Well, you should see the prayers of a guy who picks up trash. Like, I thought maybe he just would have this weird conclusion that that's, if you go prayer walking, you must pick up, you know, pop cans or trash. So just, it was a funny little thought in my mind anyway, uh, but a fun way to be imitated. I mentioned this to you, this language, this idea of imitation, the, the idea this morning, the question of are you living a life worthy of imitation? Because this morning I want us to look um, at a place where the Apostle Paul, he, he's essentially giving his last will and testament to some church leaders. And Paul says, I think six, five or six different times, Paul says in his letters to the first century churches, he says, imitate me as I imitate the Savior. He kind of models this idea that as followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus ought to be imitating Jesus. We imitate the Savior. We imitate those uh, who have gone ahead of us and lived a faithful life, walking, following Jesus. So Paul says about six different times, imitate me. So I want us to look at a text this morning that I think will give us several ways where, where we can imitate Paul as he imitates Jesus. 
and live more faithfully as, as his followers. Kind of the, the big idea that I want to turn your attention to, I'll mention several, but I want one of these to really stand out. I would say that we live a life worthy of imitation in this, that we would testify to the extravagant grace of God. Jen was mentioning that this morning. It shows up in Acts 20. That's verse 24, but I'm going to read in Acts uh, chapter 20. I'll read probably uh, verse 17 all the way through the end of the chapter. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 20, starting with verse 17 and reading to the end. So it's kind of a long section. Listen for this language of imitation, if you would. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know that I lived the whole time I was with you from the very first day I came into the province of Asia, and I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house, and I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. Now... Compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, and he will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you this kind of hard work that we would help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself. It is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and they kissed him. And they, what they grieved most was his statement. They would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Originally, when I was thinking about what to share with you, I wanted to start with a, a long explanation of the timeline of the life of Paul. If you're interested in that, let's come and talk after, uh, after the sermon. Here's the summary of the life of Paul. Um, he has come to faith. He has spread the gospel. He has established many churches. He spent about three years in Ephesus. The, the folks, the leaders of this church uh, from Ephesus have come out to meet with him. He has determined through the, the leading of the Holy Spirit that he should go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be a dangerous place for Paul because of the Jewish opponents of the gospel. Jerusalem is their headquarters. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, what happens when he goes to Jerusalem is he preaches the gospel and a riot breaks out. 
In the midst of the riot, he says, um, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't uh, arrest or torture me. I have rights as a Roman citizen. So he appeals to Rome. He takes a, a series of adventures that would make a better movie than most of the movies that are you know, in the theater right now. It's, it's like high drama. He eventually makes it to Rome where he's in prison. Eventually he gets out of Rome um, and then he keeps preaching the gospel with brings some more trouble on him. He ends up going back to Rome and at the end of his life, he is executed in Rome for preaching the gospel. There's kind of the summary of, of Paul's life. So why do I share that with you? I want you to know the, the context because when you read about Paul, when you read about his language of imitate me, he doesn't walk on water. He doesn't um, do some of the same, same things that Jesus does. He doesn't have, if you ever see a, a like Middle Ages painting of uh, Jesus or the disciples or someone like Paul, they're painted with like a gold halo and they're kind of glowing. Paul doesn't glow. He's old. He, he's kind of at this stage of his life. He, he has weaknesses, physical weakness, limitation. He's a normal person who passionately follows Jesus. And that's why we say, or he says, imitate me as I imitate the Savior. He's a, a real flesh and blood person, not some kind of a Bible superhero. The, the tears that these leaders from the church are shedding are real. They love this man because he's their spiritual father. He's invested in them. He's guided them for several years. What I want you to know is that the words of Acts chapter 20 are words of truth. They're more true than even its author understands. This is part of the beauty of, of looking at the whole council of Scripture. Luke is the person who's writing uh, the book of Acts, and he records Paul's words. Luke, um, you can follow this in Acts. The first half of Acts is written um, about uh, in the third person. This is the establishment of the, the first churches. But there's a point in the middle where Luke joins up on Paul's journeys, and then he switches in the language to we. We are going, we are traveling, we were on the ship when it crashes. As Luke writes these words, they're more true than he even realizes. Luke doesn't know when, when Paul, and he records the language of Paul, and Paul says, I don't know what's going to happen to me but I'm following the guidance, the pull of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit tells me that hardship is ahead, we get to read and know from the rest of Scripture and from the rest of the history of the church that that's exactly what happens in Paul's life. So the language of this text is true, even more so than its author understands. So I just want you to know these are real people attempting to follow Jesus passionately, living in a, a real place, in a real life, as we consider how to imitate some of the things that, that Paul lives and, and what he speaks about. So let me transition to five ways that we can imitate Paul as he imitates Jesus. And the first one that I want you to see is take in and share with others the full counsel of God's word. Look back with me at verse 20. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul doesn't pick and choose in his message about who Jesus is or about the, uh, the, the message that's been given to him, what would be easy to hear and what would be difficult. Um, if, if you're familiar with Paul's letters, if you read in maybe in First and Second Corinthians, if you read in Galatians, Paul lays out the full counsel of God's word. 
Remember that he's speaking to the leaders, the elders of the church in Ephesus, and these are the elders who will guide the flock. They will be the spiritual, um, they'll pass on this spiritual life. Uh, Paul had proclaimed the gospel to them. They've believed, they've established a church, and they would pass it on to others. And so Paul reminds them to share the full counsel of God's word. Uh, any teaching from God's word is profitable, both in public and in private. Maybe even as I'm describing this, for those of you who are familiar, maybe remember 2 Timothy 3.16, which says that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. If the church needed training, Paul gave it to them. If they needed encouragement, Paul gave it to them. If they needed rebuke from God's Word, Paul rebuked them. Every church today would do well to honor all of Scripture as God's Word. We don't have the freedom, either on Sunday morning or in our personal devotions, to kind of read God's Word with a, a thumb over the parts that we don't want to take to heart. We don't have the freedom to self-edit God's Word. We don't have the freedom to make God's Word obedient to our will, but rather we make our will, we make our lives obedient to scripture. We let scripture teach us, correct us, train us, and even rebuke us. Second thing that I would invite us to invite uh, an imitation would be that we would live sensitive and obedient to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Look back at verse uh, 22 and 23. Paul says, now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Paul lived his life compelled by the Spirit. Another translation of this passage uses the language of constrained by the Spirit. The literal translation of the Greek word has the meaning of being bound with like ropes or chains. Uh, if I had brought in as an illustration a, a big length of chain and I attached the chain to the wall and I attached the other end to, to my arm or my leg, I am constrained by the chain from going to the other side of the stage. I am bound to this side of the stage. That language is, is really valuable. Uh, if the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives as, uh, of followers of Jesus and the Spirit stirs up conviction in our hearts and says, don't do that. We are bound to obey the Spirit. We're constrained as if physical chains would stop us from going out of bounds. And if the Spirit convicts us to, to go, to go and do something that's out of our comfort zone, to go and do something that's beyond what we are comfortable with, then there's simply no other choice than to obey. Third thing in the text that I point your attention to, a way that we can imitate Paul as he imitates the Savior, be that we guard against false teaching in the church. Look down at verse 28 through 30. Paul says, Keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, and they will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. We know from what Paul writes in First and Second Timothy, uh, Paul's writing in First and Second Timothy to Timothy, 
And Paul has given Timothy this job to go back to Ephesus, the leaders that he's speaking to in Acts 20. And he says to Timothy, this is my job. I want you to work with this church. Either this church was great or it was really struggling that Paul worked with them for three years, visits them on the way to Jerusalem. He sends Timothy back to, to be the, their guide. Um, as Timothy does this work, um, we know from what Paul writes in First and Second Timothy that this church dealt with uh, self-righteousness, uh, legalism. Uh, they dealt with gossip. They dealt with these destructive trends that were a part of that church. We also know that by the time uh, the disciple John writes the book of Revelation, he uh, starts, we think of Revelation as this, um, this vision of the end of the world, but it starts with these letters to churches, and one of those letters is to the church in Ephesus. So by the time John writes the letter to Ephesus in Revelation, he writes that this church has survived, which is the good news, but he also writes, you've lost your first love. Some of you are familiar with, with that verse, with that text. You've lost your first love. So repent, turn back to the things that you did at first. We don't know how this unfolded in the life of the church in Ephesus. Did they? We don't even know exactly what John is referring to when he says you've lost your first love. Did they lose their love for Jesus? Did they lose their love for each other? Uh, I don't know that we know which one, but they're both applicable. They're both important for us to understand that if we lose sight uh, of truth, if we lose sight and we follow our church or any church, if we lose sight of what matters, uh, like mere Christianity, the, the following of of Jesus loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then loving our neighbors as ourselves. If we lose these loves, love for our Savior and love for other people, we will lose our first love. We will lose the things that matter the most, that are of, of greatest importance. Guarding against false teaching in our churches today, it, it can't simply be about right and wrong. Keep the right ideas, keep the right beliefs, and keep out the wrong beliefs, keeping right theology. I love theology. I love correct theology. I love um, being able to recognize, maybe that's outside of the bounds of what we'd call like orthodoxy. But if we do that so well, but fail to love the Savior and love our neighbor, then we will end up like this church in Ephesus at the end of scripture where we've lost our, our first love. So we guard against false teaching, holding on to love for Jesus and love for neighbor. Fourth way that we can imitate Paul and what he's, destruction that he's giving to the church in Ephesus, work hard in our jobs so that we be, would be able to bless those who are in need. Paul talks about this often, and it's probably the easiest thing that we could apply practically. Um, I don't know that we get very many sermons on this, but Paul lays it out for this church. He says, you saw the model that I set for you. Um, this might be the most practical way to imitate Paul. He says, um, look at my physical labor. He does this over and over again. And in some ways, uh, you need to know one of the reasons Paul does this, he's not just bragging about his usefulness. It's very likely that Paul had come under attack, and he'd probably come under attack in this way. Um, those who had desired to turn the first century Christians 
into full-fledged followers of Judaism, opponents of the gospel had likely come in and said, this guy Paul came in and, and he taught you a message, but it wasn't as eloquent as this message. Eloquent orators, people who had smooth speech and compelling messages would come in behind Paul and say, here's the real gospel. Here's the real truth, and would give these amazing speeches, and then they would ask for some kind of financial reward in return. And Paul defends his reputation under their attack and says, one, I brought you the truth of the gospel, but two, it didn't cost you anything. I came to bring you this message of truth, and you saw me working with my hands to, to pay my own way. Do this. Work with your own hands. Work hard so that you can be generous and loving and give to other people. Really practical way that we can imitate Paul as he imitates the Savior. Last and most important thing that I want you to catch. In imitating Paul as, we, as he imitates Jesus, our lives should matter little. And what should matter most is this, telling others about the incredible generosity of God's grace. Might be the most important way that we could imitate Paul as he imitates Jesus in sharing the great news of the gospel. A church with great theology, a church that's generous to the poor, that's nice. But Paul says, here's the finish line of my entire life. The finish line wasn't perfect theology. The finish line wasn't great generosity. The finish line, as good as those things are, the finish line was the gospel and the extravagant grace of the Savior in salvation. That's the ultimate finish line that we are all racing towards, that we would put our lives on display as a testimony of the transforming power of the gospel. We should speak the gospel and demonstrate its power in how we live, prioritizing the mission of Jesus, the message of Jesus, in everything that we do. Uh, Paul uses this language of like a race several different times. He uses the language of athleticism and combat and racing. So he uses this image, and I don't think that this image is about being, um, Paul's not saying be a better Christian so that maybe you can come in second or third place instead of like 51st or 63rd place. What he's saying is the point of the race is the finish line. The point of the race is where you are going. Um, have any of you ever watched, either on TV or in person, an endurance race where the racers come up to like a water station and they grab a cup of water and, and drink it? Uh, we hosted a couple of riders from Unbound Gravel, and one, of the, one was from France and one's from Poland. Uh, the racer from Poland said, I think he, I don't know where the, the, there were two water stations for Unbound Gravel. Maybe one was in Olpe. I'm not sure where the other one was at. He pulls into one of those water stations and he sees this little cup of what he said, I thought it was fresh lemonade. So he grabs what he thinks is fresh lemonade from the water station. He throws it into his mouth and he said, it was pickle juice. So he throws pickle juice in expecting lemonade, and I think it like it hit his palate and he spit it out. Apparently pickle juice is really good when you're like really dehydrated and 
I don't know, needing a, a boost of energy to get those last couple of miles, but he thought that was just the funniest thing to share with us. Uh, I have this picture like runners coming to the, the water station and they grab a cup of water and they, they get some, some fuel to, to get to the end, the end being the finish line, right? The reason I share that image with you, that idea, imagine a racer who runs uh, not to get to the finish line, but arrives at the end of the race thinking the point of the race, and I think in this next picture you can see some of this, all those cups that are on the ground. Imagine a racer who thinks that the point of the race is to collect the cups off of the ground. And they run along but stop every you know, 10 or 15 feet, and they pick up a cup, and then they pick up another cup, and they pick up another one, and they eventually get to the finish line, and they say, I did it. I collected 500 paper cups off of the ground. I got to the end of the race, and do you see how I've finished well? How ridiculous would that be to us who know the point of the race was not collecting cups. The point of the race is getting to this line and across it as, as quickly as possible. The reason I, I try to paint that picture for you and put that image in your mind is this. Our lives are not about us. Our lives are not about the things that so often take up our time and our energy and our passions. Our lives are about getting to the finish line of glorifying Jesus Christ. That's not just the point of Sunday morning. It's not just the point of your Bible study. It's the point of life itself. Paul says, my life is not about picking up cups. My life is not worth anything but the finish line is about the extravagant grace of Jesus, testifying to what he's done. Self-centered living is spending precious time and energy focused on stuff that ultimately has almost no value compared to the value of getting to the finish line, testifying to the extravagant grace of Jesus. I'm going to come back to that as our last thought, but I want to share a couple of last uh, questions with you that'll give you some practical steps to apply this. First question, uh, ultimately, we need to ult, uh, imitate Jesus, and Paul serves as one example of how we can imitate the Savior. But who are some other mentors in your life? Friends, leaders, um, pastors, anyone that you know who follows Jesus well that you would desire to imitate? You know, our children do this almost automatically, but we as adults sometimes don't do this well. Who is someone who follows Jesus well in your life that you can get close to them and imitate? For some of us, those aren't flesh and blood people, but they're people that we can read about. I love to read about great Christians, missionaries like Hudson Taylor and William Carey and Eric Liddell, uh, writers and Christian influences, uh, C.S. Lewis, Elizabeth Elliot, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Corey Tinboom, these heroes of faith that we can read about how they have attempted to imitate Jesus and we can imitate them. Do you have someone in person, in a text, that you can imitate how they have imitated Jesus? What are you doing to build friendships with people worthy of imitation? Do you have a mentor, someone who is discipling you? Are you discipling someone younger than yourself 
as you try to follow Jesus. Second way that we can think about uh, application, Paul uses the language of testifying to the gospel of grace. That language makes me um, just think that it is appropriate to ask, have you learned to share your testimony? That language of testify to the gospel. How comfortable are you sharing your testimony? If you only had a few moments to tell your story of repentance and salvation, could you do that? Just so that you know, that's not automatic. You don't pray to receive Jesus, come to church the next day, and know how to share your personal story. Um, I would love, I'm sure Garen, someone in the church, uh, we have resources to just guide you in learning, practicing how to tell your story, your story of coming to faith, your story of following Jesus. Third question about um, application. Paul's ultimate finish line in life was that he would be able to share the gospel in Jerusalem. Uh, later, he goes to Rome under arrest. He shares with Jews and Gentiles without getting distracted along the way. Is there anything in your life that has grown more significant to you than Jesus? Are you in this race distracted by picking up worthless cups off of the ground rather than running the race? Now, it's a truism, I believe, that we don't, the idols of our lives, we don't worship these little idols because they are evil. We worship them oftentimes because they're generally good. The role of, of your marriage, your family, your work, the things that are important in your life, they're not evil, they're good, but we sometimes take those good things and we elevate them as ultimate things, things that we would worship as supreme when only the Savior should be supreme. So we take something good and we actually, it loses its value. Um, the beauty of your marriage, your children, your family, your work, all good stuff, it can't bear the weight of all of your affection, all of the purpose of your life. Only relationship with Jesus can bear the weight of that. So what is in your life that perhaps has distracted you from making pursuit of the Savior the, the ultimate thing in your life? Last thought that I want to share with you in closing is this. As I think about sharing a testimony, as I think about teaching about the, the grace of God, I'm afraid that, that many of us think about grace, think about salvation in a way that, that's off a little bit. Um, I pulled off of my island a piece of mail to, to help illustrate this. This is the, the deposit record from my employer that... I don't hide this from the, someone zooming in online. I don't know. Uh, this is my um, record of, of what I earned this last month. It's been deposited in the bank. There's this idea that if I, this would be bizarre if I had walked in on Sunday morning and I said, I want to testify to this amount that I earned this month. Uh, I did my job, and here's the amount that I earned. That would be weird, right? You should scratch your head if someone walks into church on a Sunday morning and says, good news, I got paid. Maybe you would think, well, some of you, college students, you might think, that's a lot of money. Many of you would be like, that's not that much. Um, 
you know, it would be an odd interaction, right? Now, my illustration's about to go off the rails potentially. This is my um, artistic representation. You know those great big checks, like if you win the lottery? So here's my artistic representation of like one of those lottery checks. Here's where my illustration goes off the rails. I hate the lottery. If you want to get me up on a soapbox after church, come up front and ask me why. So my illustration is a little bit funky, but imagine, set that aside, you've played a lotto ticket and you won $500 million. You didn't do anything to deserve $500 million. You just got lucky. Do you think you would tell anyone on Sunday morning? Here's the other. The illustration falls apart in multiple ways. You might be ashamed to come into church on Sunday morning and say, I bought a lotto ticket. Jason said lottery was bad, but I bought a lotto ticket and I won $500 million. You'd probably tell somebody about it, right? Kansas Lottery might want to take your picture and put it in the newspaper. I am afraid that many of us share about the gospel of Jesus like it's a paycheck. We go to work on Monday morning and we say, I went to church on Sunday because I'm a pretty good person. I might have earned a little bit of, of righteousness by going to church on Sunday. You know how compelling that is? It's, it's, and here's what's in the fine print. If you go and you say to the watching world, I'm a pretty good person, because I'm a pretty good person, I think Jesus has saved me, so you should be a pretty good person too. It's a lie. The fine print on that is zero. It's not credited to your account. Instead, Jesus says, you're not good, you're undeserving, but in salvation, you have received unimaginable grace. And we don't talk about it. We don't want to have our picture taken with the, the mega check. You have been forgiven more than we can even understand. You have received a gift greater in value than you can even understand. Jesus, even Jesus, the greatest teacher, I think in some ways struggles to explain the beauty of salvation when he says a man is going through a field and he finds a treasure of such great value, he sells everything in order to buy the field and claim the treasure. There's a man who finds a pearl. It's like the size of a bowling ball. He, he's, he's stumbled upon the greatest treasure anyone has ever found, right? He tells the story of the prodigal son and the older son. We oftentimes share our Christian faith like the older son. I'm pretty good and I deserve what's coming to me when we should share our testimony of the gospel like the younger son. I was undeserving. I deserved to be set out of the family, but because of the amazing love of the father, he welcomed me in. He put a ring on my finger. He put the, the robe on my back and he embraced me and said, you are welcome into the family. You have received the great pearl. You have received the great treasure. You've hit the lotto. It's like the, the Jesus lottery. Don't you dare sit in the quietness of, of your work or your home, your normal life, and keep it to yourself. Paul says, imitate me in this. This is the finish line that I might testify to the extravagant grace of our Savior. 
Let me pray that over us and we'll be done. Father, God, help us to see you as the Father who loves us extravagantly. Help us to understand where some of us might be distant from you and need to receive this amazing gift. Some of us have received this gift. We don't understand it and we keep it quiet. Change our hearts. Transform our lives that we would be excited, passionate, burdened to tell about your goodness and your grace and to recognize that as the finish line, the point of our entire lives. Father, thank you that you are a God like this, that you don't, you don't set up life that we would earn your love or work really hard to be good and maybe be approved, but you give us approval and acceptance as love at step one. Let us live out of that truth more and more fully as we follow you. Amen. Let this message be on your hearts as you head out the door into life on Monday morning. Thank you.